The manuscript featured in today's episode is a hunting manual, and our conversation includes some detailed and, at times, graphic descriptions of animal death. Listeners who are sensitive to these issues should be mindful. This is Dot. And this is Lindsay. And you're listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people who love manuscripts about the manuscript they love the most. Today, we welcome Becky Pratt Sturgis to the show. Becky is Associate Teaching Professor in Public Humanities and Museum Studies at Northern Arizona University, where she teaches courses in art history, museum studies, and humanities. Her areas of expertise include human-animal studies, medieval studies, repatriation of cultural objects, archival studies, and public engagement in museums. In the field of art history, Becky specializes in the visual culture of the late Middle Ages and human-animal studies, topics that, given Becky's favorite manuscript, I believe we'll be talking about a lot today. Welcome, Becky. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for coming on. I'm excited, too, because I have actually heard you talk about this manuscript before, and it's really fun. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. This manuscript is my favorite manuscript, of course. That's that's why I'm here. Um, But it's also the focus of the majority of my research over the last 10 years or so. And it's a Bibliothèque Nationale de France, MS Francais, 616. And so we're very, very fortunate that this early 15th century manuscript, so about 1407-ish, is available to the public in a digital format. Gallica and their great digital archivists digitized it, I guess probably about maybe 11 years ago. And those digital copies are, uh, the digital version's really great. And so we'll have the link in with the podcast so everybody can check it out as we're talking about it. But this particular manuscript uh, was composed by um, probably what interests me most about this manuscript uh, by a really interesting aristocrat in the Middle Ages whose name was Gaston III, uh, but he was known as Gaston Febus. And this is really important kind of later in the story of the, the manuscript and of him. And he was the Count of Foix and the Viscount of Bern, and he lived in the 14th century. Uh, from 1331 to 1391. And he wrote uh, La Libre de Chasse, or the Book of Hunting. So it's a hunting manual in 1389. And so, you know, really close to the end of his life. And um, he gifted it. And this is this is probably what really kind of speaks to me about this manuscript is that it was a gift to another noble, so a higher ranked person named Philip the Bold of Burgundy, who was a well-known hunter and a very powerful aristocrat and somebody that Gaston had to deal with politically. And so he writes this manual and dedicates it to uh, Philip. And then in this manual, and we have 46 versions that survive today, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, So when we think about what survives from the Middle Ages uh, and how popular something is. The fact that 46 copies survived tells us this was pretty popular. And in fact, hunting manuals were in the libraries of many, many, and I'd even say maybe most aristocrats uh, as part of their like integral 
collections. You know, you had to have a hunting manual. So, so right off the bat, Gaston is kind of showing like, oh, I'm special because I'm writing a hunting manual and I'm so important that I'm going to give my hunting manual to uh, the Duke, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. even though he's a, a V-count and a count. And so this particular hunting manual, the original does not survive. So we don't have the original that was given to Philip, but what we have are copies. And so this particular one is a set of four that are thought to have been copied from um, not the original, but the, the first copy of the original, which was owned by Philip's son, John the Fearless. So it was thought that the copy that Gaston gave gave to Philip, Philip had in his library, John had it copied, really common practice with medieval manuscripts that you would copy, you know, you say, oh, I really like that. So I'm going to copy it and have it in my library. And then these were copies of that one. And you know, part of how we know that is is from the provenance history of these these kind of four top you know copies, but also by looking at like the heraldry and how the decoration and the illumination is the similar and things like that. So we kind of have like a family tree of these manuscripts, if you will. And so this particular one though is probably is really kind of considered the most kind of over the top. It has, you know tons and tons of illuminations it has 87 miniatures uh, which is which is a lot for a medieval manuscript out of 120 folios so over half is decorated uh, which is really cool so this one's really famous it's considered a national treasure of france and then we have a, a copy in the states uh, of the morgan library and 1044 of course the morgan yeah, of course, the Morgan. Uh, and so a story for another time is 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 um, why I didn't work on the Morgan one. Uh, I would, I would love to hear that story. story. Maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. I'll ask you at the end if you're ask not afraid to it. be recorded. Yeah. Oh, no, totally not. Um, it's a criticism of public access um, <laughs> or open access. But um, what's really kind of cool about this manuscript is the prologue and the epilogue of this hunting manual, our Gaston talking about writing it and his dedication to Philip. And so we have like his words. And so he actually writes, this present book was begun on the 1st of May, the year of grace of the incarnation of our Lord, who's numbered 1,387 and then finished in, in 89. And so he, um, composed it in French, which is really interesting. So he was the Count and Viscount of, uh, Count of Foix and Viscount of Bern, which are in the south of France near Pyrenees, or Pyrenees in English, so in the mountains, in the Alps. And so the 14th century is the year, the Hundred Years' War, so there's a lot happening. And so you have this guy, so in the hierarchy of the nobility, who is a Count and a Viscount. Right. And he was basically hobnobbing with, with royalty. You know, he's, you know, he's important enough that he's going to gift this manuscript to a really powerful duke at the time. And partly why he could do that, which is what's really interesting to me, is that he controlled the passes through the mountains. And so in the oh. Hundred Years War, this meant he, you know, you, you had to deal with him. You had no choice. And so he had relationships with the, the kingdoms of France, going into Burgundy. Of course, Burgundy at this time, you know, this is all the, the brothers. And there's, you know, um, everybody's kind of intermarried and interconnected in France. Um, and then you also have 
down in, you know, south of him, right south of him is Navarre and Aragon. And actually his family was married heavily into Navarre and he would marry Agnes, who was the daughter of Queen Jane of Navarre at the time. So actually, you know, for, for having lower titles, he's really kind of entrenched in the nobility. Um, he also treated with the King of England and he had um, kind of rivalries with some of the, the counts around him and with some of the dukes. So like notably some, some of our audience might recognize uh, the Che Richezur, the, you know, the rich hours of uh, John Duc de Berry, you know, Gaston and the Duc de Berry, actually, you know, we have these accounts of kind of a, a rivalry of wanting uh, important political positions. And Gaston keeps getting passed over, which, you know, in the, you know, in the hierarchy, he's, he's, you know, he's lower, right? So he keeps getting passed over, but he also has these feuds with his neighbors. So mm -hmm. there's, there's land between Foix and Bern there's a, that's owned by um, the Count of Aramaic. And, and, and kind of, so, so why does he give this manuscript to Philip? Why does he feel like he, you know, he has the power to do this? Well, partly it's because all these little counts and V counts down in the Midi in the, in the, in the Pyrenees saw themselves as owning their land by grace of God. They saw themselves as sovereigns, which is really interesting by the end of the 14th century, where everybody's pretty much swearing fealty. Like the political system is pretty clear. You know, you owe fealty to somebody. And Gaston in particular, <laughs> uh, the Counts of Foix and Bern particularly denied that. They would not, uh, they did not want to swear fealty to anybody. And when they did, it was under duress and they would frequently break those bonds of loyalty. Um, and Gaston in as particular. As soon as they could. <laughs> as soon as they could. Uh, and Gaston in particular, he, there's these great, there's great instances where to avoid kind of the politics of, of, damaging his reputation so his sense of honor and you know and chivalric culture he purposely will would send a proxy to swear fealty mm -hmm. and then you know duke you know whatever serve serve that duke serve that king with his armies for a little while and then when he wanted to change loyalty he'd be like well it wasn't me <laughs> it was my proxy and i don't know what they were doing I kind of admire this guy. Yeah, I yeah, it's like super interesting. Um, he was incredibly wealthy. So he had a, an interesting reputation because of that. He had kind of avarice, you know, kind of associations. And, you know, he would lend money and he would hire mercenary armies. But what he would do is he would pay them so well that they'd be loyal to him. And this is why everybody kind of puts up with him. You know, so he starts, you know, he goes on a crusade. He goes to East Prussia in 19, in, in 1950s, 1357, when he's quite young. And he goes on crusade and with, with members of the nobility who are associated with the Teutonic Order. And, you know, he goes, he does his thing. He gets his kind of individual feats of, of uh, prowess and, and warrior skill. So not just leading armies, which he'd done a lot of. He'd done that since he was 16. But now he has kind of individual valor and he comes back and he says, I am no longer Gaston III of Foix and Bern. He says, I am Gaston Febus of Foix and Bern. And this really, this is, I mean, this is why in my description, I said he's kind of snarky and stuff because he sees himself as equal to these kings and these dukes because his land is his by God. And Febus is a reference to Apollo, 
the you know the sun god and and he was described as having blonde hair but this is a real i mean this is a real act of of grandeur to give himself you know a nom de guerre like you would like from the nobility high nobility right and so you know so he you know and he starts signing letters and stuff like this and so you know why he thinks he has this this grace of God, this sovereignty, is because the lands were given to his ancestors. So Foi was given to his ancestors um, when Charlemagne was you know, unifying parts of Europe into what we would call you know the Holy Roman Empire today. And so he had lifted up you know these these counts in order to get their loyalty, right? And you know acknowledges them as sovereigns in their region under him. And so ever since then, basically the counts in this region were like, well, we, you know, we were sworn to Charlemagne, but Charlemagne's gone. So <laughs> this is our, this is our land. This is our resources. And so Gaston really sees himself as an equal. Now, does everybody else see him as an equal? He, you know, we have accounts and letters where he was kind of, they had to treat with him. They had to tolerate him because of so much money, big armies, and that he controlled the passes. Uh, during the Hundred Years' War. And so they, they kind of put up with him. But he also wants things, right? So he he wants he wants more titles and he wants positions. So he has to also kind of curry favor. And he doesn't want to do that by swearing fealty or actually, you know, being loyal or anything. So he does that through gifts and he develops this reputation as a gift giver. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to start with something, one of the images in the manuscript uh, that's really fascinating to me because I think it shows how he sees himself very clearly uh, and, and very kind of powerfully. And so I just dropped that in the chat for you, Dot. Um, yep. so, so I have that and Lindsay yeah. is going to get it. And we'll put this in the show notes so everyone will get to see this too. And so what we see in this illumination, and this is the first miniature of the manuscript. So this is the like first thing that Philip would have seen. <laughs> Uh, is uh, Gaston in very elaborate robes. So he's wearing hoopalons. Oh, that's Gaston. That's Gaston? That's Gaston, yes. See, this is what he I'm looks like a about. king. He looks like a king. Exactly. This is, what's, <laughs> this is what kind of kills me about this manuscript is that, you know, it's this gift, but really it's a very pointed political message. Yeah. Um, so can I can I interrupt and ask a quick question? Sure. Do we know that these so these are the same these are copies of the illuminations that were in the original yes. manuscript that Gaston mm-hmm. had. Okay. So it you said it was a political message. It is interesting because right, he gif, he's giving this to this other guy <laughs> who's more powerful than him. I would think that that would be the other guy, but it's not. It's, right? Right. That's so wacky. Well, remember, Gaston sees himself as an equal. He is a sovereign by the grace of God. And the the, um, French kings in particular really push this all through the Middle Ages, that they are the kings of France and that they're, you know, the the the, defenders of the church and all this. And so basically he's saying, I am your equal Mm -hmm. because I, too, rule my lands by the grace of God. And it's extraordinary um, because what we see in the illumination is we see him seated. Uh, he's got, he's within this um, very architectonic throne 
that that has you know this great you know it's it's kind of a uh, almost pinkish color <laughs> um, mm-hmm. with arches and it's wide and it's very kind of what you would expect you know is a cloth of um, not a cloth of gold but he has a green cloth behind him with gold decoration uh, which I think that's kind of the a, a visual caveat that he. He's not, even though he wants to say he's like a king, he's not going to push it so far that he's going to put a cloth of gold behind him. And he's high up in our composition. So he's kind of above a lot of the figures in the composition. And he's wearing this elaborate red attire that is embroidered with gold and embroidered with phoenixes. So this is this is important. So these are phoenixes that are embroidered on it. And so we go back to that, you know, he's Gaston Febus. He's tied to Apollo. He's a tie to the sun god. Uh, you know, he is on fire, if you will. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's lined in fur. And then he has black sleeves with more gold. And then around his neck, which is which is kind of really interesting to me is that he has this collar with a gemstone that almost looks like the chivalric livery collars that were gifts, uh, you know, between kings and and vassals, you know, kings and other nobles in some cases. Um, He has his sword belt and he, you know, he looks out at us. He's got, he's, he's aged, you know, so he's at this point in his life, he's near the end of his end of his days. So he's in his sixties, but you know, even still, he you know would want to be represented as kind of older, wiser leader. He's wearing a hat, you know, kind of this, this interesting hat with gemstones that you know it's not a crown, but it's in the same position as a crown. And then he he doesn't hold a scepter, but if you were just looking at this and you didn't know that it was Ante Manuel, you might have to think for a minute and be like, well, what is that in his hands? And it's it's a hunting stick, so it was a mm. stick to use to discipline dogs. Uh, and so he's holding this, this stick and he's gesturing toward it. So compositionally, he's very much presenting himself as a king. You know, this is very much a royal portrait. Our clues though, that this is supposed to be for a hunting manual is that all the other figures are, are not nobles, they're huntsmen. And we can tell that because their attire is much more simple. They wear more simple colors, lots of green and brown and gray. And then they have the dogs all around. So we have all many different kinds of breeds. This manuscript's actually popular in like all posters and things like that for the dogs. <laughs> yeah, they're amazing. They're lovely doggies. I want to give them all treats. Right. Uh, They're wonderful dogs. And we see the huntsmen kind of all around interacting with each other and talking with each other. Um, Some of them are looking towards Gaston. But, you know, adding to this illusion of wealth, too, we can't ignore that there's this great pattern in the background. There's lots of really rich blue, so lapis lazuli. We have lots of gold. The marginalia is very detailed. And this marginalia which is a decoration around around this image um so lots of um, foliage and we have a little you know we have a falcon and we have a dragon and we have these kind of neat little details is something that we also see in royal manuscripts of the time and so that's also kind of an important aspect to this is that if you look at this manuscript and you look at other manuscripts produced for the King of France, for the Duke of Burgundy, for the the, um, the Duke de Berry, 
for the, the royal family, they have very similar um, floral floral and uh, leaf motifs in the marginalia. Uh, and I so, was going to say it reminds me a lot of the most fancy books of ours. It's exactly the right? same. Yeah. Like the gold, especially lots of gold. Well, I remember, you know, I mentioned that, you know, um, Gaston has this rivalry with the Duc de Berry, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you also have this, like, wanting to be part of this circle, seeing himself as supposed to be part of the circle, and then manifesting that in this gift that he's giving to somebody else who's in that circle to sort of visually re, re-emphasize mm-hmm. or emphasize more that he belongs, uh, and, I, and I don't know that necessarily, I mean, we do, we have kind of snarky comments that are made um, in letters, um, especially with the Duc de Berry, that they're just kind of like, well, you know, he's an upstart. <laughs> uh, but we kind of have to make him happy because we need his army for this, or we need him for that, or we need to borrow money, um, you know, things like that. Uh, and, you know, he is married into... The, king, the kingdom of Navarre. So he's, you know, married to the queen's daughter, Agnes, who interestingly, to think about stories and storytelling, he eventually later in life rejects her. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. There's no, there's no good accounts of like what happens, but they become estranged and he only has one son. And they become so estranged that like there's these accounts of like the different things he would do to purposely thwart Navarre in their political goals. And when her brother, Charles V comes to power, he especially kind of really messes with Charles. He'll be like, yeah, I'll help you. And then at the last minute, he'll be like, nope, sorry. Oh, what a jerk. Things like that. Yeah. And, and there's, there was speculation that it had to do with something that had happened with his, with his wife, um, that something had happened that had made him so mad. And so he did have this reputation, which was interestingly enough of being very courtly, so um, Jean uh, Froissart visits his court and writes about, you know, the books and the music and the culture and the food and the hunting and all that. But at the same time, he was he was known as he was very widely respected as a knight, as a warrior, as a, as a leader, but also one that you didn't want to cross because mm. he could be vengeful. So, you know, a lot of ego here. And then he he really presents this manual that he's an expert in hunting. And he did. He loved hunting. That was very much part of his reputation, that he would hunt from basically morning to dusk. And so he writes this manual about uh, the medieval hunt. And, and that's really how I got interested in it, because I was working on some wall paintings at Schloss Runkelstein in northern Italy, in, in Bolzano. And they have a, an image, they have lots of hunting on the walls, but they have an image of a boar being, or I'm sorry, a bear being unmade. And meaning it's being taken apart, it was being dismembered. And I was like, why is that on a wall? And so I had to try to find other images of the unmaking of animals as part of the hunt. And so that's how I came to the hunting manuals and how I found Gaston's book. And so on one hand, you have this great manuscript that's a gift that shows all this kind of political stuff that's happening. But in the manuscript itself, it actually tells us a lot about how identity is formed and how the nobles saw themselves and also the rituals that were associated with making noble hunting different than how everybody else hunted. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, so you know, you're going to take like an activity that everybody does, like everybody has to hunt, right? And how do you make it so that it's special from the nobility? So you have 
the parks that develop, so the medieval parks, and, and then you also have particular rituals that are associated with the hunt. So my next image for you is actually the image of the ritual of unmaking. And, and this was the focus of my, my very first article because I was very interested in why. <laughs> why would you have this image of a boar being dismembered? Oh in this beautifully lavish, brilliantly colored manuscript and on the walls of this castle. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I was like, why are people looking at that? And so so what we're seeing, so, so how the hunt worked is they would go out hunting and the nobility hunted on horseback, which is a really important distinction uh, that they had horses. And so Gaston in the manual starts off by talking about the kinds of animals that you hunt. So the number one animal was the stag. And then he goes through and talks about different predators and um, mm. so things like wolves and bears and also omnivorous animals like boars, uh, which were incredibly dangerous to hunt. So basically he's setting the stage of like hunting is noble because it requires special skill. Like you have to have special skills to be able to hunt these animals on horseback. And then he goes through like kind of smaller stuff that I, I want to talk about last in, in, in our session here. Um, so smaller prey. And then, and then he gets into this ritual. And then the last part is like hunting with traps and snares mm. and things like that. So less noble ways of hunting. But, but he even writes in the manual that a, a good book of hunting has to include everything. So he, he's not just including the hunt par force, the hunt on horseback, mm -hmm. but also these other methods. And so the number one animal to pursue was the stag because it was considered that was kind of the closest to battle because you had to be really fast and very agile on your horse. And they pursued some of these animals uh, with, with wartime weapons. So things like swords and bows and the stag itself in, in medieval culture was also associated with holiness and nobility mm -hmm. and had this, you know, so to pursue it, made you have these qualities and then to consume it would give you those qualities too. Uh, so that was an important aspect of this. And so, sorry, is that why I'm thinking of if in England in particular, and this probably happened other places, the people weren't allowed to kill deer. Is that right? Or is that only on like Royal land? On Royal land. On so royal land. Okay. yeah, on Royal land. And that's the medieval parks. And so, right. but what the nobility would do is they would chase all the deer onto the, the, the medieval parks. So, okay. so the, medieval, the medieval parks themselves are very much constructed landscapes. Uh, and mm. the hunt itself, so in the case of like what, what Gaston's describing in his manual, and he, you know, he sets it up that we have breakfast in the morning, there's a great illumination of they're all having breakfast and they have their swords hanging from trees. Uh, so they're having breakfast and then what they're waiting for. So they get ready and they, they load up the horses, and mount up the horses. And then they're waiting for the huntsmen to do relays where they basically kind of force the stag into specific paths so that the nobility can go across larger distances, which is why the medieval parks had to be very big. You wanted to have that chase aspect of it, but they would kind of stage it in a way that they would mm -hmm. sort of force the stag into a particular route. And then when the noble kind of got tired and was like, all right, I'm done, they would corner it 
So the, the huntsmen, the helpers, the assistants would corner it. And then the, the noble would get off his, you know, get off his horse and he'd come over and he'd take his sword and he would cut its hind leg. And then he would stab it through the sh- between the shoulder blades. Right. And I see that happening in the, I see that happening in the image here. That's what they're doing. The, I see the hind leg. Yeah. So what they're doing here, so there's not a lot of images of that actual like killing blow. So what they've done here, we see Gaston again, a younger version of Gaston. (laughs) Uh, In his red. red, So that's partly how we know it's him. And and he has his his great jewelry (laughs) and kind of blondish hair. And so gold embroidery, you know, so because when I go hunting, I think a, a red outfit with gold embroidery is the way to go. And uh, he has wrapped around him an oliphant, so a hunting horn, and he holds mm-hmm. that hunting stick again. But what's happening with the figure below him, who's holding that back leg, is he's starting to skin the animal. So what uh, we call the okay. fleening. So this is the first part of that ritual I'm making. So after the lord or the, the highest ranked member of the hunt, you know, takes out the stag by stabbing it through the shoulder blades, which is totally impractical. And there's a lot of this. So if we think about identity and saying, oh, well, we hunt differently than the lower classes, that's a big part of it, right? That it doesn't have to be practical, that it has to be uniform or codified. And that's what the manual does, right? It says, this is how you do it. And so here we have the the fleeing begins where they're going to skin the animal and Gaston describes it as you start with that back leg uh, mm-hmm. and you begin to take off you know, take off the skin. And then the next part of that is you would then cut it down the middle. Uh, so you, you know, slice it all the way down the middle of the stomach. So where the stomach bot is the bottom of the body. And then you would uh, start to take apart different pieces. And so there was a whole ritual aspect to this and that there were certain pieces that you cut at particular times and are in particular order, which was super interesting. And then different parts would go to different people on the hunt. Mm-hmm. So, so different uh, inside parts of the body, you know, different innards would go to specific individuals uh, to kind of show, um, you know, that they were thought to have, you know, health values, for example. And so cutting apart the animal on the anterior after skinning it, and then you would detach that hide too. So you would detach the hide and um, set it off to the side. And Gaston actually talks about those internal organs. So he's, you know, talking about like, this is what goes to this person and this is what goes to that person. And they would take that bloody hide and then they would get balls of bread and roll them in the blood (laughs) It's another great image of this. I'll, I'll show you this. This is this is really um, partly what what got me really into this manuscript was just how like gruesome some of these you know these beautiful illuminations. But then when you look at them, yeah. you're like, oh, like what are we what are we really yeah. looking at here? They like, are really beautifully done. Like I have to say, it's a nice looking stag. Poor thing, getting its. And I have to say, the whole thing it sounds very unfair, especially the cornering like I'm not surprised like I think I think that hunt uh, you know upper class hunting still kind of works that way like I'm thinking about people who go to like Africa to like go on safari and oh yeah I think it's I think it still works that way it's like you know I paid a lot of money you know and now I'm gonna get my you're gonna help me like get my the animal and it's not very 
it's not very sportsmanlike, you know. Oh no, not at all. Big game hunting is terribly yeah. rigged in yeah. every way. Yeah. Well, it's awful. And, and this was too. I mean, this is the origins of trophy hunting. I mean, this mm-hmm. is. I mean, because they would pursue more more animals than they could consume. And yeah, so, you know, part of it in, in practicalities, like, like people tend not to eat, like historically people didn't eat bear, for example, it was a very complicated animal to consume because medieval people had this association that what you ate, you could take on their characteristics. And so mm-hmm. animals that ate other animals were cannibalistic. And so, oh, right. you know, that oh. was an issue. Animals that ate carry on. So wolves, for example, ate carrion. You didn't want to eat a wolf because a wolf ate contaminated flesh. And then to kind of make this, you know, I don't want to get into like a lot of, you know, theology and like theory, but what was really kind of interesting is this idea that after death, you were bodily resurrected. You're not just resurrected when Christ returns, but like your physical body, like, like, um, to be, um, kind of glib just a zombie like 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 yeah. resurrection so so there was yeah. you know you needed all your body parts and then you would resurrect with your flesh and so if you ate say the flesh of a wolf who had mm-hmm. eaten another wolf or or even worse eaten another human you would now resurrect with that flesh mm-hmm. uh, and that was very problematic and so part of what i argue is why why have these rituals because the unmaking ritual itself, some parts of it practical, but some parts are not. And we know that they actually did this because we have evidence from basically the trash heaps from castles. Mm-hmm. So zoo archaeologists have found and looked at the, the cutting marks on the bones of deer and of boar. These are the animals that were most often unmade in a ritual. And it shows that they, they did follow this. So, you know, it's like, why do it? And part of what I, I theorize is that you had to take away some of that animality that is associated with them to consume them, but also to like, kind of like how we go to the grocery store, you know, today and you, you don't, you don't go and pick up a, a hunk of, you know, you don't pick up half cow most of the time. You pick up a nice, neatly packaged, dismembered cow or chicken or whatever it is you're eating, right? So you're, you're making it into something else, right? It's no longer an animal per se, it's meat, right? We even use a different language for it. And so the the last part of this ritual has the, you set the hide out and then you roll these, these balls of bread in the blood and then you would give them to the hounds as a reward. And so the last image I dropped in for you is actually probably, I think, the most gruesome image because there's this great, there's a dog that's standing on the hide at the center of the composition, mm-hmm. and he has a ball of blood just hanging out on his tongue and, yep. and dripping down. And and then, but you also see in this scene, you also see kind of interesting parts of that because down at the far right, there's a, a little guy in red um, who's mm-hmm. holding the head of the stag by his antlers. And the dog's licking the inside of it. And off, you know, if you go further, if you go up the composition, um, right next to him, the guy in purple is holding up the intestines. And so what's oh, happening? That is. That's Ugh. intestines. Yeah. So, so what's happening here is that this was a training exercise. It was to teach the, the dogs to listen to, their, to the 
huntsmen uh, to listen to orders. And if they followed them, they would be rewarded. So this is kind of the, the reward for their work on the hunt. Uh, and they would be part of keeping the stag in, in the direction they wanted to go or, or pursuing smaller prey, you might use the dogs, things like that. And so it was to encourage them to, to listen. But we see again, we see Gaston again in the composition, this time wearing kind of like a mauve tunic. He has his oliphant. He has a, a different jeweled necklace. But now he's with other members of the nobility. So we see next to him, uh, three members in the nobility. There's a there's a guy with this great hat. He's got this like feather thing off his hat. A guy in blue and a guy in red, and they all have those those hunting sticks. And and what's what's described here is that he's teaching them. So he's he's the expert who's teaching them, which is super fun and interesting. And there's a lot of images of him in the manuscript teaching, so showing that he's uh, such an expert that he's going to teach others about these rituals but notice he's not the one doing the work though you know he's not usually the one with the knife he's not usually you know he's it's you know it's telling the huntsman that the uh, his staff basically to do things for him <laughs> uh, you know he can't he can't you know sully his hands with that but yes it's so super fun but the the last kind of favorite part i had of this manuscript that i, I wanted to to share is one of my favorite illuminations of the manuscript. This illumination is great because it, um, actually I have a poster of it in my office. <laughs> it is an image of rabbits in a warren. So in a- uh, Oh my goodness. <laughs> warren. So, so I figured with all this like death and like politics and all this, I wanted Aww. to share like, this is a truly marvelous manuscript in its representation of animals. It's really, really extraordinary. And there's a couple of different image, images of rabbits and hares. And uh, what's kind of notable about this one is in the far upper right, uh, and this is partly why scholars, including myself, think that this was probably a different illuminator because this is only one of two images in the whole manuscript that have any kind of architecture. Uh, and so mm -hmm. in the background, we can see a castle kind of faintly in the background and uh, some other kind of allusions to buildings and what looks like similar to like a windmill in the back. But you have this this great abstract landscape that's trying to give you that idea of the hills and the you know kind of rolling landscape, little like copses of trees. And, and you can see, you know, little baby, little, little um, bunny butts. Uh, <laughs> really cute. This yeah, is actually yes, this, the style of it, not the rabbits, but the style of the of the landscape, again, is reminding me of really nice books of hours where yeah, you have yeah. miniatures of like saints and they're always in these, you know, these sort of idealized landscapes with hills and green mm -hmm. and, and stuff. It's exactly like that. And I, it, I yeah, it's so pretty. Plus bunnies. Which is plus nice. bunnies definitely yeah. definitely produced in a Parisian workshop. So yes. so we do know that uh, we don't know exactly which workshop there there has been some conversation about it. These aren't really well studied. In all fairness, there's not very many of us who study medieval hunting at all, let alone mm -hmm. these hunting manuals. But Millard Mice, um, he had you know, a famous manuscript scholar, he had talked just a little bit about this manuscript because it did share, like you mentioned, 
qualities with books of hours at the, at the same, you know, at the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, we definitely see that overlap that it was, it was most, I mean, I, I would argue, I'd say, I mean, maybe I shouldn't as a, as a scholar, but I'll say it. I think, I think it was definitely produced in a workshop that produced other Royal manuscripts mm-hmm. and it was purposefully, you know, made to, to look like this. The, the, there is another, there's another one of these manuscripts at the Hermitage. Um, so in St. Petersburg that I actually think is probably the copy from which these copies come from, mm-hmm. uh, because in some of the background of, in one, in the background of one of the illuminations is the coat of arms of Foix. So it's, it's the pattern decoration in the background is the coat of arms of Foix. And the other copies don't have that, which makes sense. So mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. this was for um, you know John the Fearless, he's not going to want Gaston's coat of arms in the illumination. So that makes perfect sense that those would be taken out. And so that one makes me think that that's the direct copy of mm-hmm. the original. Or maybe, I mean, there's been conversation, some conversation that maybe it's the original, but we we don't know. But that's probably the the closest in the the family to that. And so. You know, the, the stylist styles are very similar between this and that one. So it's really, really close. It's just like little small details. So all of them, you know, have these same kinds, kinds of miniatures. But you have like in this particular manuscript that it has those architecture elements. You have a lot of detail in the border. So it has a red and blue border, but there's flowers, really delicate flowers in those borders. And this border is also different than all the other borders in the manuscripts. Uh, so this was definitely like a, a one-off. Like there was somebody that worked on this one that didn't work on the other illuminations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and such great detail with our little bunnies. And we see them in you know different profiles, so some from the side and some uh, running and some jumping and others coming in and out of the warren. So uh, in addition to those cute little bunny butts, we have little bunny heads uh, sticking out in this really great landscape. And so um, the whole first part of the manual after Gaston's author portrait is images of animals. And it's mm-hmm. really, really cool. Um, just and they And some of them, so this one's kind of, um, this one's a little bit more basic. So Gaston in the the descriptions asks, is telling us about like how they live and the different seasons to hunt them and lots of practical information. But for some of them, so like the bears, he's talking about how they're very carnal and they're very sexual and they fornicate all the time. And so what you see in the illumination is actually bears fornicating. <laughs> Um, so there's there's kind of kind of interesting things or like the the elimination of the wolf the wolf's tearing apart uh, what looks to be like a fox so he's he's ripped it in half and there's lots of blood so so you know what we also see in the illuminations is kind of medieval attitudes towards different animals so like which animals are bad and which animals are good and you know, so it's it's really fun. I didn't mean to talk so much. Sorry, I got really. Excited. No, no. This is why we. This is why we have it. And this is so interesting. We haven't. This is so different from any other manuscript we've we've looked at so far on the podcast. It really is. Yeah, and so the last thing you said, though, I think is really interesting about what it what it tells us about the attitudes towards animals and. These are obviously, those are cute bunnies, you know, and 
it sounds like they didn't think wolves were cute. No, no. So, so they of course ate ate rabbit, ate hares. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really common. But again, you know, you have these animals that were considered unclean because Mm -hmm. of what they ate, and wolves were among them. And so, you know, we do see that there's a difference in how some of the predators are portrayed versus you know omnivores or or animals that only or, you know, herbivores. And it is kind of along with that. So the boar, so this kind of top animals were like the stag, very noble. Uh, And then you had the boar, which was an omnivore. So um, they they could eat meat, but they also ate plants. The boars were also unmade. So there's description of how they were taken apart. And part of what I hypothesize is why that was, is because boars were, A, highly desirable for their meat, because we all like bacon. And you know, meat eaters like bacon, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, certainly true in the Middle Ages. They were also incredibly fierce. You know, a, mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. got killed by boars. And in fact, Gaston in the text even says, like, boars are incredibly dangerous and they will they will take you down and they will take out your horse and you need mm-hmm. to be very careful. And in the manuscript, the boars have very sinister faces. Like they actually have very humanistic, sinister faces with giant tusks. And then those are the one animals they show the most being pursued with swords because the oh, idea wow. was they were a, a, a very worthy foe that they, you know, to defeat a boar meant that you, you, know, you knew your stuff mm-hmm. and that you were brave because they, they could be so dangerous. And, and of course, like whenever I was, I was working, when I was working on this, I kept thinking about, I'm from Southern Arizona and we have javelina. And javelina can also be incredibly dangerous. So like, you know, you'll hear stories every once in a while out of like Tucson, like, oh, a javelina, you know, took out somebody's dog or something. But if you see them in in real life, they're huge animals. And boars are too. I mean, boars are bigger than pigs. Mm -hmm. And in the manuscript, there are no domesticated animals. And I think that's an important distinction too. This is about the pursuit of wild animals and the practice for war and for, you know, this is for the nobility and the nobility are pursuing boar. You know, the, everybody else is eating, you know, regular pig that they raise. Like farm stuff. Yeah, farm stuff, yeah. right? So there's a really big distinction there, too, that this is not just a wild pig. This is a this is an enemy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's really quite uh, interesting. So I'll, I'll be sure to send you an image of the, the boars, the sinister the boars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. And I am, I'm, I'm fascinated too, by this idea, which doesn't, I mean, it doesn't surprise me because it does seem like a very historical thing that what you, what you consume, you take that on. And so eating an animal that, that eats other animals mm-hmm. is like, cannibalism and that's a thing and now I'm like I write I don't know if you know this Becky I write horror stories Mm -hmm. in my spare time and so the thought of like now I want to like write a medieval horror story (laughs) where somebody consumes cannibalistic animal yeah and then turns into a cannibal and I don't know what happens next but I like I like the concept I'm gonna be be workshopping this a little bit thinking about how I can how I can make this work because that would be that would be kind of fun. Too. I'll, I'll fun. send you the chapter. I'll send you the chapter for my dissertation about the oh yeah the animals. Yeah, because I haven't published I haven't published on that 
um, that, that first particular section of my research I haven't published on, but um, yeah, it's really interesting because it's like this idea that like, so humans are prohibited from eating other humans, right? So, right. so it's very, you know, part goes all the way back to early Christianity. Humans do not eat other humans. Plus you don't want to res- resurrect with like Joe's arm or something in you. So you know, you know, you <laughs> it never occurred to me that that could happen, but yeah, sure. like, you know, you know, you know, you don't want that to happen. Um, and this is all very simplified. So I'm going to throw that right. out there for anybody who's medievalist listening to this. Yes, I know this is very complicated. We're just simplifying it for this. Um, <laughs> there's deep, complicated theology and, and ideas here. But, um, you know, but this also this idea of like eating dead flesh is very mm-hmm. problematic. And that's part of like the carry on eaters. And, right. and boars, I mean, this is part of why I hypothesize why boars in particular were, were unmade, that they had to be ritual unmade because boars had a reputation that they would eat um, if they if if they attacked a man and they fell, you know, they fell off their horse or whatever, and there's a body that they would chew on that body. And mm-hmm. so they would be taking in some of that flesh. And, and so to kind of counter that and still eat, you know, bacon, <laughs> you ritually dismembered it as like a form of purification. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, and so like, cause I mean, I, I really was, you know, thinking a lot about like, why, why, why would you do this? You know, what is the purpose of, of, of this? You know, since so it have like a practical purpose, like why, why go to this trouble for these two animals? And then at Ronkelstein in the wall paintings, we have the um, unmaking of a bear. Um, but that's directly tied to the story of that family. Cause they have like, they have an, an origin story, if you will, about how they saved mm-hmm. the village from a bear and their, their coat of armor was bear claws. And like, you know, so it made that, you know, that made more sense that they would ritually dismember the bear that was attacking the village, you know, but, you know, looking at boars, you know, like why, why do that? And so all throughout the, the manual, you have these very interesting representations of animals that are very reflective, I think, of like their status. And, and they're even in that order. So Gaston lists like the best animals to hunt. And then he kind of goes down to the ones that you don't eat or the ones that are considered uh, what we call like nu- nu- you know, nuisance animals today, like here in the States, like wolves and things like that. Um, and then the carrion eaters. And yeah, it's, it's really kind of interesting. You know, he creates this whole hierarchy where, you know, he and he's at the first, you know, he's the first image, too. So not only is that all about the politics of Philip the Bull, but now he's saying like humans are at the top and then I'm going to rank all these animals. And then I'm going to talk, talk to you about how to kill them. Does, right. does does he ever talk about the hunting dogs and what the best kind of hunting dogs are? Yeah, so there's a whole section, a whole chapter, if you will, and that's about dogs. And actually, um, it's been on my list of something to work on because it's all about the care of the dogs. So how you train them and different ailments and, you know, like, you know, what do you, how do you do this? How do you, how do you take care of all these dogs? And they've been identified. Um, there's a, a scholar in the UK, Richard Almond, uh, who, who wrote kind of the first, not the first big book on medieval hunting, but probably the, it's one of the most recent. And he went, he went and identified all the animals. So there's mastiffs and there's, like our, you know, would be a medieval version of like a greyhound. And, um, mm-hmm. and it talks about like how the different breeds are used for different things, which is super interesting. Um, but it wasn't something I focused on because I, to be honest, I'm a scholar of violence and um, I'm very interested in how humans, humans in the Middle Ages used animals to construct noble identity in particular. So how are they um, using either, you know, in practice, so the hunting itself, but also the visual 
visual culture associated with that. So I'm all about the violence and I, the, the dog chapter has no violence. So I, I didn't spend That's as good, much though. time in So it. it means they're not being violent. Yeah, no, the dogs are very well taken care of. And actually, um, for Sar, when he talks about his his journey to burn and he you know, writes a whole book, Voyage to, to Burn, um, he actually talks about how Gaston pretty much treats his dogs better than anybody else. <laughs> so there's something good about him. There's yeah, something yeah. good about him. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, he was very accomplished, though. I mean, there's there's a number of accounts that, you know, I mean, he was respected uh, as as kind of a knight of the times. Uh, it, but so, but on the other hand, it was also he was kind of annoying to people. So yeah. you you have that that part of it. <laughs> uh, I do, I have been sort of hopping around in this manuscript, and I've just found an illustration of dogs that are wearing spiked collars. Yes. Can you share that, you share that link, Lindsay? Yes. So the mastiffs usually, if I remember correctly, are the ones that wear the spiked collars. Um, and it's because they would take down smaller prey, keep them from getting injured. Theoretically, you know, keep them, keep other animals from attacking their neck. So if I, if I remember correctly, I, I'm 98% sure. <laughs> I'd have to, to go back and double check. Oh, I think one of them is... I just opened it up. It looks like there's puppies. Yeah, there are. It talks and, about the breed, breeding of dogs. Yes. Yeah, and one of the mm -hmm. dogs is a is a nursing mother and has three mm -hmm. little three little puppies. Yeah, one of the interesting things about the manuscript is Gaston does. He talks a lot about procreation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of procreation. Uh, he does. He talks about the seasons of breeding and and actually, if you hunt, so I come from a family that hunts. I don't hunt myself, but my my dad's a big hunter and a big deer hunter, actually. So when I was working on this registration, I was kind of quizzing him on like contemporary practices because I was very interested in like like some of that. And one of the things that's really important in, in hunting and in, in all periods of history is knowing when to hunt. Um, and mm -hmm. so just like we have restrictions today. So hunting licenses will restrict like when you can hunt certain um, sexes of animals, right? So when you can hunt stags versus does versus, you know, thing, you know, you don't hunt babies, you don't, you know, so it's like part of what Gaston is, is really talking about. And some of it's really practical. The text has a lot of really practical information is he's talking about like breeding, you know, how, how to ensure that you have more animals to hunt later. And mm -hmm. almost all the images that are just of the animal. So it's not about like pursuit and um, actually usually show babies or they show mothers uh, or they show the, the fornication <laughs> um, the, the bears is quite interesting because bears in medieval imagination they thought they they fornicated standing up and so the bears in the elimination are standing. yeah it's just kind of interesting so <laughs> here's the bears um, yeah so the, the bears are fun <laughs> Lindsay found the bears um, to see. see you'll see about the bears uh, I had to I had to go looking. It just sounded too interesting. <laughs> I know. I was, I was when I was getting ready to you know come on here. I was like, what are some of the more interesting images? And I was like, well, the bears oh, are quite interesting. Um, look at those bears. <laughs> they're having a good time. Yeah, they're having a great time. Um, but yeah, there's so there's babies. Um, the image of yeah. foxes has babies. Um, another really interesting image. Uh, so one of the things that I I went looking for when I was working on this was images of water. 
because mm -hmm. the medieval parks would have basically what we would call today like water features. <laughs> mm -hmm. You would manipulate the landscape uh, to have certain water features so you could have certain species. And uh, so there's, there's a few images of, that have water, but there's two that have rivers and they're of otters. So, and they, they show the huntsmen, so not the nobility, the huntsmen with tridents trying to take out the otters, but the otters are swimming and it's great. Like for, as an art historian, it's great looking at like the perspective and all the color and, and the representation of space. And they're just really fascinating illuminations. And so, um, so if you're interested in learning more about like the abstract quality, because these are kind of abstract and realistic at the same time, I did write, I wrote a chapter, I published a chapter on on the abstract aspects of the, the, the illuminations and like why they're abstract. Um, mm -hmm. So the backgrounds are very abstract, but super fun. Like you can see like the waves and, but there's these little huntsmen taking out the otters um, <laughs> or trying to take out the otters. I should say I hope the otters get away. Yeah. <laughs> too. Yeah. There's it's, it's, it's interesting. So you have like the rabbits where we don't see them getting killed, but then you see some of these other bigger, animals and again that goes back to like for the nobility this is partly practiced for war so there's no real challenge in pursuing a rabbit there's mm -hmm. not a lot of challenge pursuing an otter um, there is a lot of challenge in pursuing the stag or the boar and there's more representations of the stag and boar throughout the manuscript than there are of any other animals yeah and there's scenes of the nobility on, on horseback of Gaston like on horseback um, pursuing you know they're they're on the chase and they're they're chasing after the stag and they're chasing after a bear and, which i find kind of funny because like a bear it's totally not practical to chase after a bear on a horse with a sword but sure um, <laughs> whatever if, works i guess yeah but again that goes back to like this is supposed to show also warrior prowess right this right. is this is about the person who's writing it person who's dictating the illuminations it's not really about hunting if you will in the illuminations the text is but the illuminations are i feel more about identity and about about gaston and in his kind of place in the world and how he he sees right. the hunt and and showing it off to of course philip <laughs> philippe uh philippe to say look you know i'm one of you i'm part of your club so kind of a side note it's just sort of an interesting thing is um I was at a conference long, long time ago and I was talking about this manuscript. Yeah, this was like 10 years ago now and met somebody from the Getty and they were like, you know, we have a copy of La Livre de Chasse. And I was like, really? I got really excited. I, I went to grad school in Arizona and I was like, oh, you know, I, it's close. I don't have to go to France. I don't have to go to New York. And, mm -hmm. um, but it's almost comical. It's like very cartoonish. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple of those. So it's, and it's, it's not very well done. Thanks. This is not, I wasn't a world, world workshop that did, <laughs> did that right, one. Right. And so, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. So there's, you know, there's, there's copies of this manual that have no illuminations, it's just text. Mm -hmm. So going back to that practicality, but there's a lot, there's a lot that have illuminations of varying quality. So you have like the top four, very high quality Royal workshops, more than like, you know, workshops catering mm -hmm. to royalty for sure. And then you have like different levels of nobility basically you know, could they, have, you know, how to afford it. So it, it really speaks to just how popular this became. And, and I think Gaston would have really liked that. I think he just would have been just thrilled with that because he died. <laughs> he he, dies, in, he dies in 1391. 
So, you know, he has no, you know, he doesn't really know that his manuscript's yeah. going to be like the hunting manual. And it's translated into English uh, in the 15th century by Edward of Norwich. He makes his own change, you know, he makes some changes and he adds on to it and stuff. But it continues on, you know, it was, it was incredibly popular um, all the way until the end of the 16th century. Mm-hmm. So it's like Henry VIII, you know, I mean, that's just to give his point of reference, sort of interesting to think about it. So did you, uh, first of all, Lindsay, do you have any questions for? <laughs> well, <laughs> one's more of an observation. Um, the picture of the. I've already forgotten the phrase. I've heard it dressing the deer. The yeah, yeah, unmaking. Yeah, yeah. Also called dressing. There's a couple of phrases <laughs> that, for it. That looks an awful lot like what I saw my neighbor do one Christmas day. <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> never forget walking out the front door to go to my grandmother's house for Christmas, and there's my neighbor in his driveway with a deer hanging from a rack and he is unmaking it right there Christmas day just out in the yard (laughs) that's what I'm uh, my my husband's a vegetarian and I was telling him that if we went to visit my family who they they ranch they have a farm and they hunt and they're all rural kind of thing Appalachia and I was like, you know, we're going to drive up and there's going to be a deer hanging from the tree in the front yard. <laughs> and he was like, okay. So be prepared. So just be ready, you know, because you, know, you, you kill the deer, you hang it in the tree to drain the blood and, and then you cut it down the center and then and you take off the skin, you know, you take off the skin and you cut it down the center and then you cut it up. Um, you know, so it's, it's in the manual, the description, there's description of like how you're cutting it up that is not necessarily practical, but the act of cutting it up is, of course, very practical. And we yeah. still see remnants of this in places like Germany. Um, I've had so many people uh, who study later German culture who've come up to me and said, you know, hunting in Germany still, you know, we still do a lot of these things. Uh, and then also in the States, you know, places with, um, especially places where there's a lot of Germanic culture in my, my family on that side actually comes from Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very interesting uh, to see how some of this has carried over uh, that's still still being done. And again, to the same no purpose, right? Trophy hunting most of the time, right? So, yeah. I mean, that's a distinction. I mean, go to the store and you're going to buy buy stuff that you eat, but, you know, are you going to consume what, you know, what you take out on the hunt? My brother-in-law hunts deer and he uses all of it. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's what my family does. The other little observation that I have, I don't know that it's so much a question, but it's so gross, I hesitate to even say it. <laughs> um, and it has it to do with the um, with why they treated the boar with such intention and almost reverence. I remember hearing somewhere, this is probably an interview with a survivor of something horrible, that when human flesh is, well, cooked, mm-hmm. it's an awful lot like pork. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. I wonder if that is part of why they didn't yes. want to, they mm-hmm. were so reverent with it. It was very close to what they knew that yeah. 
human flesh was. Well, you have in the Old Testament, you have taboos against, um, you know, pork. You have, you know, and some some cultures still have taboos against pork. And, um, you know, in medieval culture, there's not. There's, you know, you could eat pork. You could eat, you know, there's no problem with it. But there is that lingering anxiety, I feel like. Mm -hmm. That was part of that. And then boars were also described very humanistically. So same with the stag. The stag was also described very humanistically. And the stag was, you know, also associated with um, different aspects of Christ. So you, that also kind of adds another, like, you need to de-animalize, de-humanize it. You need to completely, like, make it not an animated living thing that, that has any association with people. Because, again, that, that gets too close to, like, cannibalism, right? You know, you're getting too close mm -hmm. to, to eating yourself. And so, yeah, the same with the boar you know, which is described as being a worthy foe, because of course your best foe is another human, but to really show how dangerous and deadly it's talked about how smart it is and how cunning it is and how clever and strategy. And, you know, I mean, they, they give it qualities also that, you know, they don't necessarily have, but they humanize it in that way. And then at the same time, dehumanize it by emphasizing its fierceness and that it would roll in the mud and that it might eat people. And so you have this real kind of tension with like, you know, there's this animal and, and we're not sure what to do with it. And in, in order to eat it, though, we, we don't want to eat something that's too much like us. And the skin itself, yeah, the skin itself, lots of fat, you know, renders very similar to humans, you know, smells, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things, you know, so you want to you want to take that away. Right. So you want to take away any reminder that it was this animal um, that was like us and, and render it into pieces. Right. So de deconstruct it if you will um you know, it's just like when we go to the grocery store a lot of people even today would really struggle if they you know if they go to you know a carcinera at a you know a mexican um, you know meat shop where you have like whole heads and stuff a lot of people struggle with that and so i think that's like you know it, there's an innate anxiety around being confronted with with really the 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 living aspect of animals, right? That it was alive like you. And if you can kill it, it could kill you. <laughs> so that fears of death, yeah. but also fears of contamination. You know, did it, you know, did it attack somebody? Did it eat it? Are you going to eat contaminated flesh? But then, you know, is it like you in, in human, human, human aspects, like intelligence and agency and things like that. And people in the middle ages did believe that animals had a certain amount of agency, especially boars and pigs. I mean, we have accounts of pigs being put on trial for, for murder, for example, for causing a murder, uh, that they, you know, there's this, there's a lot of, a, a lot of anxiety about animals in general. Like, do they go to heaven? Do they go to hell? Can they sin? Can they not sin? Do we eat them? Do we not eat them? Like, what do we do with them? Uh, and I think all of that also kind of appears in different ways in, in this particular manuscript. Like, how do, you know, this, this long history of like, how do we reconcile killing other living creatures, eating other living creatures? Um, you know, what do we do with that? And Gaston had a great time. I mean, that, that was his, his, his favorite thing to do was hunt. I mean, he loved making yeah. war, making money, and hunting. That seems to be his jam. Um, Things have not changed a bit, have they? <laughs> no, he, a lot of people still like that, aren't there? He did not have a reputation as a womanizer, though, interestingly enough. Hmm. There's not and really, other than speculation about his wife, like why they were so estranged, mm -hmm. um, 
there's no, no, nothing. I mean, and actually it's, it was even, it's even pointed out in some commentary that, that he didn't really engage in courtly love activities either. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't really, he liked dancing in his court, but he didn't dance. He liked music, but he, you know, so he, he, he was really kind of like of the time, like I kind of think of like the Marlboro man of the time, like, you know, he's very much, um, you know, it's all about war and it's about animals and, and he really wealth and wealth. And part of that was when he was growing up, there was a lot of conflict and the family had plenty of money, but there was a lot of conflict. They lost land. And so like, I think some of that manifested later when he got older that he wanted to accumulate, 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 um, at least, I mean, if, you know, bedside yeah. psychology. <laughs> Is there any indication well, that he was in fact into men? No. He's clearly into like manly activities. And if he wasn't a womanizer, no, I and I've never no. come across anything that would yeah. indicate. But I mean, I don't know. I don't know necessarily that there would be um, any any way to any tell document really if he didn't for that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he he did seem to be aware of his reputation. So mm -hmm. even though he you know refused to participate in some of like the chivalric activities expected of him, um, especially loyalty. He always countered that. He had a great reputation for largesse and for gift giving and participating in gift culture and reciprocity, which was so important in the Middle Ages too. So he was more like a favor kind of person. Like you, you know, you ask for a favor, you know, scratch your back, scratch my back. So like early mob mentality. I kind of imagine him like um that he's this like mafia boss in the mountains. But like he he but yeah, there's nothing. There's really nothing about his relationships for the most part. Um, and there's not a lot about his relationship with his son. So he had one son and and he tried to get his son married to the daughter of the Duke of Duke de Berry. And this was kind of like the final straw for their relationship um, because the Duke de Berry kept like hemming and hawing and like wanted Gaston's money, but didn't want to you know marry into his family. And um you know, so it, it was, there's all this like rivalry stuff happening. And, but he, there's not a lot about his son. His son dies of an early, at an early age. He dies in a, an accident. And, and actually Gaston dies. Gaston dies in an accident too. Um, but the, there's a great story with his son and there's fire and there, yeah, it's, it's bad. Wow. Um, yeah. So there's, yeah. So there's some kind of interesting stuff there, but yeah, there's not a lot about like close relationships. He did have like a commander in arms, like a, his buddy, um, Espan de Leon. Uh, and there's letters that he writes to other people. Like he corresponded with John of Gaunt. And, you know, it, this his Gaston story is sort of interesting because when you hear like the English side of stuff and you're looking at the French histories, Gaston's name doesn't come up a lot. Um, but then when you start studying Gaston, you realize how entrenched he was with this, this group basically. And um, because there's letters and all this stuff. So, so Espan's, you know, corresponding with John of Gaunt and, um, you know, he writes a little bit about Gaston, but I guess if there was any kind of relationship, I would maybe those two, but mm -hmm. Gaston had such a, I mean, he seemed to really lean into this reputation as a military man mm -hmm. that I, I would imagine that if there was, he would go to great lengths to keep it, keep it quiet, to keep it quiet. Yeah. yeah. 
you know. And, and he invites Jean Froissart to come and visit his court for an extended period. So he really kind of invites the paparazzi, I feel like. But even that's intentional because he has, you know, he wants to be seen as part of this group. And, you know, yeah. Sorry goes on and talks about the kings. And, you know, so of course he should come and see him because he's one of them. Right. right. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so he wines yeah. and dines for Sar. So it's that's interesting. Fun. We're getting towards the end of our time. Uh, but before we do, I want to circle back to something you said at the start, because I am I am all for the hot goss. I want to know why you didn't study the one at the Morgan. So I've been to see the one at the Morgan. Um, I've, I've, that's the closest thing I could get to here in the States. Mm-hmm. So I did, I've gone to see it several times and they've been wonderful. The reading room staff is wonderful. Uh, the yeah. I should say too that I do know some people at the Morgan, and they are also yeah. delightful, yes, delightful human beings. <laughs> so, so this is not a reflection on them by any means. Um, they also have some of the they have a facsimile, one of those high quality um, mm-hmm. Verlag facsimiles of the Petersburg uh, version. So, so oh, I was nice. You were able to look at that while you were there. Yeah. Yeah. So I was able to see all. I've, I've seen all four manuscripts because the other one's digitized at the BNF too. So I've been able to see like the four main family of manuscripts um, in some form or another. Um, what's, what's kind of interesting, and this is thinking about discussions that have been happening on Twitter lately about the digital uh, and and making more access to archives digitally and taking away access or, or not having access digitally. And of course, that brings up issues of labor and archives and money and resources mm-hmm. and all this, you know, and um, but this is. So, so I never got to see BNF 616 in person, um, which is very sad. It was very sad to me. That was partially because uh, the BNF wouldn't let me see it. Uh, it is a national treasure. It is considered a, a real jewel of their collection, and they just don't let people see it. And their argument, I mean, I had great letters of recommendation, I had all the stuff, but their argument was is that they had conducted these high, incredibly high-quality digital mm-hmm. scans of it, which is true. I mean, there are details that you can see in those di- in the reproduction that you would never be able to see. You know, I mean, you'd be breathing all over it and, you know, whatever. So I didn't get to see that one in person. And I actually included a whole chapter in my dissertation about this, that, um, you know, how do we how do we engage with manuscripts? You know, how do we work with them? How do we understand them? And, and for the purposes of the things that I work on, it was it was fine to work on digital man, in a digital version. I'm not a paleographer, so I'm I'm interested in the content and the style and things like that. Um, and so that was fine for what I wanted to do. But I did want to see one of them in person because you know, in person's cool. And but also the Morgans is not really well digitized. Uh, this is one of their kind of projects. I mean, that's what I was told in 2013. I've yet to see it materialize, so I don't know if it's ever going to happen. They were going to take apart the manuscript to um, rebind it. And when they were doing that, they wanted they were going to scan it. And I don't know whatever happened with that whole idea. Um, but part of the reason why I ended up not using 1044 in as much of my work as I would have anticipated, because that's it's also a very interesting copy of it, was because they charge to use the images. Oh. And even if I'm there and I take my own photographs, they still charge. Oh and at God. that time, it was about $300 an image. Oh, oh my goodness. goodness. That's a, and so... That's, that shouldn't be legal. 
Yeah. So, so at the, at the time, I don't think that's the case anymore. To be yeah. fair to them, I don't think that's the case anymore. So if anybody from the Morgan's listening, it's totally cool. But because um, <laughs> I don't want to get blackballed, blacklisted from the Morgan. Um, like, don't ever let her back. Um, but at the time, it cost money. And I remember I was I was publishing my first article about this. And I wanted to use their images. And I couldn't. I ended up using the BNF because the BNF only charged 25 per image. And they charge because they recognize the labor that goes into digitization, which is totally valid. I, I'm, I'm very much down with that. I think I think we need to recognize that kind of labor. It's, it's so hidden so much. And um, I remember I was talking to the editor of my last article and my first footnote actually talks about that because <laughs> I was like, you know, we want to recognize the hard work that people like you, Dot, do and, and, other, mm-hmm. and others that, you know, make it possible for the kind of scholarship that we do, um, you know, or especially for, for people with limited resources, um, which are often scholars from, you know, women scholars, scholars that uh, identify with historically oppressed and, and currently oppressed groups, you know, so mm-hmm. like we want to um, make things accessible as much as possible. And so that was kind of my like my problem with the Morgan was that like I couldn't work on that manuscript for my dissertation because they were going to charge me to have those images in my dissertation. Uh, and my mm-hmm. dissertation has something like 40 images. Like there was no way as a graduate student I could afford that. Uh, and there's no grants for dissertation publishing. And, you know, so it's, it's, yeah, there's grants if you're publishing an article or something, but there's nothing in my institution required, you showed that you had permission to use those images. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but again, I think these things have changed. I mean, this is now almost, you know, this is six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of things have changed. um, But, you know, the, the French, French collections have been on the forefront, I feel like of, of access in a way that, you know, the U.S. is just now catching up that this idea that we want to make digital images available and usable and um, and not restrict access in any kind of way. I mean, and part of the, the problem too with the Morgan is I was a grad student, I didn't know as much. Like now I would be like a, a bulldog. I would have been like, well, it's for non, you know, I would have just wrote whoever I had to write to be like, you know, this is for education. And then, you know, I mean, I, I know more about how to, how to break through some of that bureaucracy. Yeah, I think it's also, it also depends on the institution. I think, I, you know, love the Morgan, they have amazing collections, but they, they aren't on the forefront, even in the United States of, like, digitization and Mm -hmm. providing free access to that. So, I mean, I've been at the University of Pennsylvania since 2013. And I guess in 2014 is when we launched our project Open, O-P-E-N-N. And that was sort of making all of our digital, digitized manuscripts available in the public domain. So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't even have to, you don't have to ask for permission. We don't charge people to use them. And a lot of other institutions since then have sort of followed suit, both in the U.S. and elsewhere. The Getty has their um, open I can't remember exactly what it's called, but like open data mm-hmm. or open something uh, program where they have um, a lot of their stuff, particularly their medieval stuff out. Um, and some, you know, it's just, it really does have to do with if you can afford it, like if you have the infrastructure to actually do the digitization and then you have to have servers 
or someplace mm-hmm. to put them. And, uh, you know, Penn is really lucky because it has been investing in digitization work since the 90s. Mm-hmm. So it had like a huge thing. If you're a big library that do- doesn't have a history of doing this, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I have to set this whole up, whole thing up. And then it's expensive. And, you know, so I definitely feel for it. And finding funding to do that is... Mm-hmm is difficult because a lot of um, funding agencies want to fund things that are cutting edge and new and different and like digitization, like we've been been doing that for 20 years. What is, you know, what is that? And there are like, luckily there are. So we got a big grant um, from the, from clear, which is the council on library and information resources. Mm -hmm. They are still funding digitization grants. Um, And, and so that's great. Uh, but it's, it is, you know, it's hard. So on one hand, like, it would be great if they did it. But on the other hand, also, it's really hard. So yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's expensive. And, you know, when I had talked to the I talked to the conservator the last time I was there, and, um, and that's when they were telling me about the project to take it apart. And uh, which actually worked out really well, because they had already started. So it was much oh, easier for me to get the folios I wanted because they had already started on dismantling it. And so that actually was really good. Um, but that also meant I'd have my request, like had to go to the head curator at the time because it had already been, you know, and then they, you know, they come and talk to me, but, but it was just really, really great, especially as a graduate student. And, um, you know, but it also, you know, they had said like part of it, you know, taking it apart and then, then we can photograph it. Um, and I just, I don't know, I haven't looked in recent years, like, where they were at in that, but they did do that. I, they have good quality images of the crusader Bible and they have, you know, I mean, I think part mm-hmm. of it too is like time, you know, is it the right time to do it? Are you, you know, are you taking it apart or anyway? Um, and resources just for photography cause it's so hard and then, um, you know, priorities and the Morgan mm-hmm. has a lot of priorities. I feel like yeah. it seems like you know, from the outside looking in that, that they have like other priorities and, um, and, you know, you put all those things together and then you, you know, that's where you run into. And, but I mean, my thing was, is like, so, so with the request for images, so they have images, so they have photography on their website in their catalog, which was really helpful because it was like basic, but it was really low quality, like really low quality. Uh, and mm-hmm. so you, if you wanted to use something, you would put the request in. I'm sure you've, you've experienced this dot where you're, you're scanning something, you're photographing something specifically for someone. Right. And mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why they were charging um, was because, you know, it was like a special request um, to, and then to use for publication. So, you know, I mean, I, I sort of see it. I, I think, yeah, I think knowing what I know now, I, Mm-hmm. would have maybe kind of fought more. And then I know, I knew I got to know people there and, you know, it's always different when you become a known quantity. <laughs> so yeah. I feel like that, you know, that also helps um, instead of just, a, you know, a little grad student, you know, this was my like, you know, get to see a manuscript. And um, <laughs> so I've worked on castles before that. So I, I never set out to be a manuscript specialist, actually. I had intended to stay with medieval wall paintings um, and nobody really cares if you photograph medieval wall paintings. Um, <laughs> the secular ones that I work on, they were, they were just thrilled that anybody wanted to study them. So they're like, sure, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll do whatever you want. Um, but yeah. it was very interesting to then go and work in a library and, 
and, you know, asked to see staff and, um, but they were incredibly, the, the staff was incredibly helpful too. And basically they were like, so I was there both trips, like several days and they're like, oh, hey, you should look at this or, hey, did you know about that? Uh, and, and that was really, that's the power of, of being in a physical space with the, the, you know, the people who handle the collection the most is that, you know, you may not know about something, it may not pop up in the catalog with your search, but they can, you know, they'll be like, hey, I was thinking about what you're working on and I think you should look at this. Which is super cool. I mean, that's the yeah. that that's my argument. I think for seeing stuff in person and going to archives is that you can benefit from those conversations and from working with the professionals in those spaces in a way mm-hmm. that, of course, the digital doesn't provide. Um, you know, in the digital and the digital, you're at the mercy of the quality of the catalog and the metadata and like, is it going to pull up, you know, do you have the right search terms? And is the quality of that digitization what you need? Um, and so I was very fortunate that BNF 616 is, even though it was digitized, you know, over a decade ago, incredible. I mean, just incredible what they've done with um, Galaga and the manuscripts digitization projects. Um, absolutely extraordinary. So I'm, I'm very fortunate as a scholar to, to be able, and that I can share it easily with people. I think that's the other cool thing is... Like now, you know, they're going to get so many, well, I don't know how many hits, but they'll get more hits on that manuscript and, and you know, somebody somewhere I'm looking at that. So I, I, I hope that that, you know, keeps, helps contribute to the, the care and uh, upkeep of that manuscript. Um, although they value it a lot, so it's not really in danger. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, but knowing that no, people are using the, the digital copy is a sign of value. Yeah. 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 Great. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Becky, for, for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.